Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. He is haughty, and your laws are far from him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent, watching in secret for his victims. He lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off into his net. His victims are crushed, they collapse, they fall under his strength. He says to himself, God has forgotten. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief you consider it to take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that would not be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them. And you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, in order that man, who is of the earth, may terrify no more. Father God, we thank you that you are king above all else. And we pray that as we understand your word this evening, you would help us to hold firmly to that truth as we face a world in which is full full of wickedness. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you sit down, please do uh, pick up uh, one of the Bibles in front of you and turn back uh, to Psalm 10 this evening. Uh, As Pete said, we've been looking at a number of Psalms uh, through the summer. Uh, Last week, uh, we read uh, Psalm 9. Uh, I wonder if you remember the wonderful words uh, we read there from verse 7. The Lord reigns forever. He establishes his throne for judgment he will judge the world with righteous, in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done, for he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. It was great words that we read, great confidence that we could have in God. And yet after we heard that last week and you got home and you sat down with your cup of tea and turned on the 10 o'clock news, I wonder how you felt then. 
Or as you've been reading the newspaper this week, how have you felt about the Lord who's a refuge for the oppressed? It doesn't seem at times, does it, that the theology that we learned last week of God's opposition to the wicked, his determination to judge with righteousness, matches up with what we see in the world around us. It seems that it's a theology which is a bit shallow. It doesn't seem that God has been a refuge for oppressed Christians around the world as they've been executed. There seems at times to be a disconnect between our theology and the reality of the world. As you've read that or watched that, I wonder if you've maybe been crying out, Lord, you're meant to be a refuge for the oppressed and yet you seem to stand far away. You're meant to be a refuge in times of trouble, yet you seem to hide yourself. Lord, it doesn't seem as if you're an ever-present help. It seems as if you're an inaccessible mountain that no man can scale. You see, that's the cry as we come to Psalm 10. At one time, Psalm 9 and 10 were probably one psalm. You see that in the footnotes of the Bibles we have. And yet now we have them as two psalms. And yet, as we read through the first half of Psalm 9, it was a, a, what we call an acrostic. Each uh, subsequent line starts with the successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So verse 1 would start with A and then uh, B and so on and so on. And he's got up to uh, K by the end of uh, Psalm 9. And I imagine uh, King David having a rest at that point. Uh, maybe he's been up early, he's been working on it hard, and he's thought, I want a, a coffee. And so he's, he's put his pen down and gone off for his coffee and turned on the radio while he's uh, working hard at his coffee machine. And as he has uh, had that break, he's listening to the news and he's hearing of the world in which he lives, a world full of bloodshed, of the poor being exploited. He's heard of people being abused. He's heard of men perpetrating acts of unspeakable wickedness against other men. And after he has his coffee, he switches the news off and sits back down at his desk. And he starts the next verse, verse 1 of chapter 10. He starts it with the next letter of the alphabet, K. And yet here he begins with the desperate cry. Look at verse 1 there. Why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in times of trouble? You see, King David, as he wrote this psalm and looked at his world, felt deeply the pain of the world. Why is it like this? He struggled with his, with matching his theology up with his view of the world around him. A kind of cognitive dissonance, if you like. His internal views and thoughts didn't seem to match up with reality around him. And he struggles, as we may have been struggling as we look around our world And as we do that, this psalm here gives us words in which we can pray. If you like, you could say, what should we be doing by the end of this? And and one thing that we should be doing is praying in the way that the psalms teach us to pray. Here is God's prayer book, if you like, a way in which we can learn to pray as we live in this world. I was reading a book this week, and the writer, I thought, made a really helpful comment. He said this, he says, prayer... It's not an escape from the problems of the world, but an engagement with them. You see what he said? Prayer is not an escape from the problems of the world, but an engagement with them. And that's what we see in this psalm here. You see, the temptation that we have when we look around the world is to maybe bury our heads in the sand. 
And yet we're given here a pattern which engages with the problems of the world in which we can pick up and we can pray as we engage with the problems of the world. You see, here is King David crying out, Lord, you are meant to be a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. So why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourselves in trouble? And did you notice who he cries to? He says, why, O Lord, Lord with capital letters there. And that is using the covenant name of God the relational name of God, that, Lord, you are this covenant God of ours, and yet you stand far off. And then he goes on to describe those around him, the wicked, as he calls them. And at this point in the psalm, which has been so highly structured up to this point, becomes quite chaotic. The alphabetic structure is lost, and his reason is his mind is not in order. He looks at the world, and it doesn't seem to match up. He's struggling to make sense of it. Here is a reflection on the nature of the wicked. And it comes tumbling out as he looks. Verse 2. In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. Maybe we think of the payday lenders preying on the weak and the vulnerable, providing them with help so that they can burden them with more debt, profiting from their despair. Verse 3, he boasts of the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. Not like the rapper who will boast in doing whatever he pleases. Snoop Dogg, in one of his songs, had these lines, I'll do whatever, however I want. As Snoop Dogg and elsewhere can post, he is someone who can boast in being a pimp and can be using drugs. He boasts in the cravings of his heart. Verse 4, In the pride, the wicked does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. And here's the arrogance of the wicked. They do not seek God. There is no room for him. Richard Dawkins surely exemplifies this attitude of rejecting God, having no room for him. And you see what his rejection of God leads to in his ethics. His ethics, which meant this week he could say to someone uh, who was worried what they might do if they were pregnant with a Down syndrome child, he could say, abort it and try again. It would be immoral to bring it into the world if you have the choice. He has no thought of God and so he is free to take his ethics wherever he wants. No thought for God. The psalmist continues, verse 5, his ways are always prosperous, he is haughty, and your laws are far from him, he sneers at his enemies. Do you not see that with people around? Crime doesn't pay, and yet so often the wicked do prosper from their crimes, and they do seem to, in their arrogance, say, I will always be like this. And so they say, verse 6, he says to himself, nothing will shake me. I'll always be happy and never have trouble. You see, you tell people, have you not done this? You say to people, there is justice to come. God will judge the world. And they will say, well, I've carried on like this all my life and nothing's happened to me yet, so I think I'll just take my chances. Nothing will shake me. The arrogant, confident of the wicked, trusting in his own ways that he will get away with it. And there's more, verse 7. His mouth is full of curses and lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. 
He uses his tongue to oppress and to destroy, and he savors the power he can get from it. So that's the point of trouble and evil being under his tongue. The sense is there of him enjoying the taste of what his threats and curses bring on others. No, it's the threats of Islamic State saying convert or die. It's the, the lies of the sex trafficker promising wealth and a better life if they come with them and then using threats and curses and lies to maintain control over their victims. It's the power gained by the threat of revenge porn. And he goes on in verse 8. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent, waiting in secret for his victims. And the premeditated preying on the weak and the powerless. And it's always those who are less powerful they go for, isn't it? It's never those more powerful. You know, it's the grooming of Jimmy, Samuel, Jimmy Savile and Rolf Harris seeking opportunity to destroy life for their own pleasure and gain. Verse 9, he lies in wait like a lion in cover. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. And here's the ruthlessness of the wicked. Those who catch the helpless and drag them off, surely that's what we saw in the terrible beheading of James Foley this week. An unarmed journalist charting what's happening, caught and dragged off and brutally murdered. Verse 10, his victims are crushed. They collapse under, they fall under his strength. The wicked grinding down the weak until they're crushed. Here's the experience of the abused wife, beaten, crushed to a shell. Here is the illegal immigrant, exploited for gain and faced with death. Now, the psalmist paints in a gruesome and awful picture. You see, we should be crying out to God in this kind of way, engaging with the problems of our world. I wonder how often our prayers contain this kind of agonized cry to God. And the worst of it is what the wicked say in verse 11. The wicked says to himself, God has forgotten He covers his face and never sees. You see what the the heart of the wicked says? I can carry on doing whatever I want because I'll get away with it. There is no consequence because this God that you talk of, well, if he exists, he doesn't see and will never do anything to me. Now, whether that's the, the Muslim extremist who looks at the God of the Bible and says he doesn't exist or the functional atheist who says there's no such thing as God. Both have removed the barriers around true and good and right morality and do whatever they want. And they think in their arrogance, God will never do anything. You see what the wicked do? They turn the ethics of the Bible on their head. You see, we read these words. They're not the the picture of someone who loves God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and neighbor as self. Here's a picture of someone who loves himself with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and sees his neighbor as a threat to be fought. And in all of it, it seems that God is doing nothing. You see the characteristics of this person? Self-centered And as he is self-centered as someone who rejects God, which is what we do when we become self-centered, we remove God from the picture. And as we do that, the barriers to morality are removed 
and evil flourishes. And that's what we see in the world around us, isn't it? You see, before we get too comfortable, though, and before we point the finger at others, the uncomfortable truth of this psalm is the way it's quoted in the New Testament. You see, the Apostle Paul picks up verse 7 of this psalm and quotes it in Romans chapter 3. He uses it at the conclusion of his argument about all of humanity. The conclusion that he makes is that all people have sinned, and he picks up this psalm to make that conclusion as part of his argument. And in using verse 7, he is alluding to all of these verses. You see, as we try to excuse our little sins, and we always have little sins, don't we? Because we never commit big sins. As we excuse our little sins, we start to betray a heart which is the same as the wicked here. A heart in which we think that we are the center. We become self-centered. A heart which removes God from the picture because if we thought God cared and God would do something, then we would never do those things. We do things because we want to do them. So before we point the finger at those around us, we must remember that although we might not have gone to the depth and the extent of the wicked that are described in this psalm, our hearts are the same of rejecting God and putting ourselves at the center. And so we should cry to God as we cry about our world to save us. We cry, Lord, have mercy on us, forgive us. And so as the psalmist engages with the world around him, he prays, he cries out to God, describing what he sees. And then he cries for God to do something. You see how he goes on in verse 12. Again, using that relational name of God, Lord. Verse 12. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. He calls on God to do something, to raise his hand. As one commentator says, the the lifting of the divine hand symbolizes not only the strength of God, but also a declaration of God's hostility against his enemies. He asks God not to forget the helpless, to do something. In verse 13, his incomprehension comes back. The wicked says God won't call me to account. And yet, verse 14 But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it to take it in hand. You see, it's not that God has forgotten and cannot see. He does see. The wicked thinks God will not do anything to me because he can't see what I'm doing. And yet the truth is that God can see what's going on around him. He can see, and so verse 14 over the page, the victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. God sees what is going on. And so the victim commits himself to God. As the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, being oppressed by the, the Egyptians, God did see. God did remember and God did act. And so the psalmist cries in verse 15, Break the arm of the wicked. An evil man, call him to account for his wickedness. That's a striking cause to break the arm 
I don't know, the, the flexed arm, the symbol of strength. God, break the strength of the wicked. That's a striking call, but how right, surely. We want the wickedness of the world dealt with. We want God to do something. And so as we face up to the reality of the world, we cry to God to do something. And as he continues to pray, the psalmist continues to think about what God is like. He remembers that this covenant-keeping God is king, verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. And as king, he will remember his people, verse 17. You, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted, you encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. And so there we have the psalm in two halves, the cry about the wicked and the cry for God to act in accordance with his character. And as we get to the end, you may say, but the problem's still the same. God still remains hidden, doesn't he? And in one sense, that is true. It does seem that as we get to the end of the psalm. And yet, as we read this psalm as New Testament readers, what we see is there was one who faced the most horrific suffering. We saw wicked men looking for sly ways to trap the Lord and put him to death. We saw them laying traps. As Jesus was arrested and mocked, we see them issuing threats and curses. We see them hunting the innocent man and thinking that they can prosper as they do that. And as Jesus hung on the cross, that is what seemed to have happened. And as Jesus even cried out at that time, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did he not inhabit the experience of the the afflicted in this psalm? At that time of suffering, he felt the pain of being alone, of being abandoned. He felt the fact that God seemed absent. It felt as if God was not there for him. And yet do you remember as Jesus hung on the cross, he could say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now in the midst of the seeming absence of God, he prayed to God, committing himself to him. And he died. And yet as the Lord Jesus died, he was not abandoned. And that's what we see in the resurrection. And we see that he was then vindicated as he was raised to life again. God was not hiding himself. God would do something. And, God, and in that event, he assures us that God does deal with the wicked. And God will deal with the wicked. He does hear the cry of the afflicted and will vindicate them. And so as we cry out to God to do something, it's in the assurance that God will hear the cry of the oppressed. That God will hear the cry of his people. He will bring peace and vindication when Christ returns. He does, therefore, encourage us to keep going in faith. He does encourage us that he will do something. 
And he says to us, keep crying to him in the midst of the reality of this world, engaging with it in prayer as we cry about the wickedness and as we, ex- we appeal to him to do something. Well, that's what we're going to do now and Pete's going to lead us um, in prayer. So let's pray together.